What is? What is? What is? What is biblical counseling? Biblical counseling will grow you from brokenness to wholeness. The light bulbs are going off in my head. <laughs> this is like deep. I just haven't thought of it that way. It's mind blowing to me. I don't know if I've ever had anybody put it that plainly to me before. All this time I've been going to church, this never resonated with me. This is Transformed. And now your host, Assistant Professor of Biblical Counseling at the Masters University and Certified Biblical Counselor, Dr. Greg Gifford. Welcome back to Transform. My name is Dr. Greg Gifford, and I have the privilege of being your host for both this show and also our TV series. And as you may have guessed, we are in the middle of a series on being a peacemaker. I hope up to this point, you've even had a chance to implement some of the things that we've talked through. Because as you all know, we are in situations that require us to be peacemakers every day. Our goal is to be someone who actually brings peace to a circumstance and reconciliation, forgiveness, repentance, the key ingredients that must be present for peacemaking are what we've been talking through. So if you recall, first episode, I said, glorify God in conflict. And each conflict can bring glory to God. That's important to hear because some of us hate conflict. We loathe it. We don't want it. We avoid it. Any conflict means a failure, means we must give up something in order to make that conflict go away. But that's not necessarily true. Conflict can bring glory to God, both in personal Christ-likeness, the way we respond to it, strengthening of relationships. So our commitment when we're experiencing interpersonal conflict is to glorify God. The second thing I said is to approach it humbly which is the Matthew 7-ism of getting the log out of your own eye. When we talk about getting the log out of our own eye, that is to say, if we are contributing to this conflict, we must humbly own any contribution we are making. That can be actions and attitudes. So there may be a sense in which my attitude or my approach to the circumstance, my timeliness and talking about something, my tone of voice was contributing to why a person is upset with me. And I must humbly accept that. Remember, if Christ can take on a human body and live among his creation and to subject himself to death, even death on a cross, then what is it that you and I cannot do? I mean, really, if Christ can exemplify that level of humility, then what is it that I cannot do? I can at least own my faults and own how I'm contributing to conflict. So today we're going to get to a third principle, and it's almost like a preliminary principle getting to the third principle. So when we are seeking to be resolvers of conflict and peacemakers, there is a time that comes when we actually have to say something to another individual. And if you call that confrontation, if you call this good communication, if you want to call this reproof or rebuke, each of those terms could aptly be used to describe what we're talking about when we have interpersonal beef with another person and we are at a point where we have to say something about what's taking place. Uh, First of all, I want to start with addressing this principle of when should we confront? Because as best as I can tell in the scripture, we want to be people who are generally not offended by things. Let me say it a different way. I want to be a man who is able to experience difficulties, adversaries, folks that are inconveniencing me and perhaps even speaking down to me. I want to be able to experience that and genuinely not be rattled by it too much. I want to, in a way, be unoffendable. One of my colleagues here at the Master's University, his name is Grant Horner, 
and I was listening to one of Dr. Horner's lectures about 10 years ago, and, and this struck me. He said something that struck me. He said, I want to be a man who is unoffendable. And I thought, wow, that's actually a really unique perspective that very little offends us, not because we're aloof in this life and just kind of checked out, but because we are so loving and we're so merciful and we're so gracious that regardless of what's taking place toward us, that we're generally taking a position of grace and mercy and love. I want you to grab your Bibles and let's open them up to Luke chapter 6. You see, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is speaking here, and he's going to provide a challenge to us. In verse 32, he says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Okay, pause before we read verse 36. This is the way that God calls us to love, that we're to love all people, including our enemies. And our love for our enemies may look different. It may be wise. It may mean that there are are levels of self-protection that I still must include in that love, but I'm still loving them and doing good to them for the glory of God. Why do we do that? Because that's what God does. That last phrase in verse 35, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. What a shocking statement. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Matthew's gospel is going to capture this idea and say that God even sends his reign and his sunshine on the just and the unjust. Everyone in this world experiences the mercy and the love of God. So why do you not only love people who love you? Because you're attempting to be like God. That's the way God is. So verse 36, here's the point. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. This statement of being merciful is to not treat people according to their sins, because God doesn't treat us according to our sins. He actually shows grace to us which is that we get treated with favor when we should be treated with judgment. Why are you a merciful person? Not because it's your natural disposition per se, and it may be your natural disposition. or It's not only because you've been shown great mercy and you have been shown great mercy. Why are you a merciful person? Because you're emulating the character of your father. And when you do that, you're being like your father in heaven. So you don't deal with people according to their sins because that's how God treats you. I know most of us love the mercy of God when we need it most. We love it. We bask in it. We revel. We appeal to it. We implore it to be applied to our life. And yet some of us are very stingy in demonstrating that mercy to other people. That we bask and revel in the mercy of God toward us. But when someone sins against us, we're actually very nitpicky. We're very exacting. By exacting, I just simply mean that we demand everything be repaid. We are not merciful. This first principle of asking, when should I go and confront someone? I have to, first of all, default to this idea of, I want to be a merciful person, and I hope you want to be a merciful person. Not because we are peace fakers, but because we are genuinely not going to treat a person according to their sins, because that's the way God treats us. First principle, when should I confront someone? Try to be merciful. The second is to cover it in love. And some have actually even used these as almost 
synonymous. To cover something in love is a biblical principle. It's taught in different places, but one example is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is something that will actually cover up sins instead of exploiting them. If you even look at 1 Corinthians 13 and some of the definition of what love looks like, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in busting people out. The sin patrol is out and we caught you. Aha! Uh, that's not loving. And, and if that's our heart's disposition, then the problem is not the other individual. The problem is us. See, when we begin to ask the question, when do I know I should go and confront a person? What I would encourage you as the listener to do is to default to this posture of love and mercy. As best as you can, you're going to overlook it in love, or as best as you can, you're going to show mercy. Now, this is not the same thing as enabling. This is not the same thing as perpetuating the sins of a person or facilitating in them continuing to sin against you and others. That's not what mercy and love are intended to accomplish. This also isn't peace faking. For some of us, we would just we would love to just hide and say, I, I'm being merciful to you. Uh, but inwardly, we're actually still brewing on it. Uh, we're outwardly saying we just want to show love, but inwardly we think about it all the time. We actually haven't canceled that debt and forgiven them. So don't weaponize these to mobilize us being peace fakers, because we don't want to be peace fakers and we don't want to be enablers of individuals who are sinning, but do recognize we want to default to this posture of being loving. Once we've done that, our goal is to then say, look, if I cannot cover this in love and I cannot be merciful, I need to go and talk to them. So hopefully you as a listener are thinking like, okay, Dr. Gifford, like I want to be loving and I want to be merciful, but how do I know when I should go and confront a person? Perfect. That's what, that's what I want you to be thinking. But first of all, I want you to be thinking, are you responding in a gracious and merciful attitude? Or are you a little quick to pull the trigger of confrontation and going and talking to them? Because if you're quick to pull the trigger of confrontation, then you're probably not covering things in love and being merciful. If you're unable to go to that person and confront them in a gentle and a gracious way, I can assure you that difficult conversation is going to get more difficult. So here is the point. When should I confront someone? First of all, I'm going to do my best to show mercy and show love. Now, let me give you some qualifications. First of all, there are qualifications for when we know we should go and confront. As I've mentioned in prior episodes, these principles are going to come from Ken Sandy's The Peacemaker. It's a bigger book. I know some of you might pick it up and be intimidated by it, but I would encourage you to check out The Transformed Store, look for The Peacemaker, and look at the section on when should I confront. And here is one of the first things that Dr. Sandy's going to say. We must confront when this is an issue of safety. We must confront a person when this is an issue of safety. So we need to take a short break. When we come back, I'm gonna do my best to explain what an issue of safety looks like, and then we will keep moving on to the next qualifications. We'll be right back. Hey, hey. Well, 
as we take this quick break from Transformed with Dr. Greg Gifford, I hope you find this episode as helpful as I am. He's talking conflict resolution, an area that I know most people really need to grow in. And while we take this break, I want to take just a second to talk about some great resources that we have available in the Transform store at transform.org. We believe the resources that we carry there will be a real help to you as you work through some of these issues yourself. And one such resource is Gaining a Hopeful Spirit by Joni Erickson Tata. It's a powerful resource and tool for those who struggle with anxiety and depression. One of the things that she says in the book is, quote, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. We need to pace ourselves recognizing that the more we draw upon Christ's strength, the more we'll find ourselves able to carry out the tasks he set before us. And you'll find an entire resource full of that information. Joni Erickson taught us Gaining a Hopeful Spirit, available right now at transformed.org. And hey, while you're there at transform.org, could I ask you to do me a favor? Could you possibly start thinking about and looking at and gathering information on becoming a gospel partner. You know, we're committed to producing resources like Transformed and other resources like Wretched Radio and TV, Road Trip to Truth, Breaking Bread, but we can't do any of these things without your help. And so if you would consider becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner and supporting our ministry, you would help us continue bringing biblical counseling and the gospel to millions of people all over the world. Again, all of the information that you could ever need, you can find at transformed.org. And finally, also, while you're there, if you've ever considered becoming a biblical counselor, another resource that I want to point out that's available there is Seeing with New Eyes by David Pallison. Profound and powerful are just two words that I would use to describe this book. It'll help get you started on your journey to becoming a biblical counselor. And here's what you're going to read throughout the book. Pallison says the goal of counseling is to illuminate the heart and help people see themselves as they are in God's eyes. And in that, to make the love of God a sweet necessity. That is worth you picking up seeing with new eyes by David Pallison, and you can do it at transformed.org. All right, well, now let's get back to Dr. Greg Gifford, who is standing by, ready to continue talking about conflict resolution and peacemaking here on Transformed. Welcome back to Transform. The Bible would tell us that OCD is not a disorder. It is the fruit of wrong believing and wrong theology. And now your host, Dr. Greg Gifford. Okay, welcome back. Thanks for coming back and joining us for this last segment here as we're talking through when should we confront an individual? Just before the break, I said, when this is an issue of safety, we must be willing to address it. Next is when this is causing public damage to the name of Jesus Christ. Let me give you something that's public defamation to the name of Christ. When someone in your church, they're a professing believer, whether it's male or female, they move in with their boyfriend or girlfriend. So they were fellowshipping at church. They were there every week. They met someone special, and then now they're living together. Okay. That's public defamation to the name of Christ. We have a problem here. And out of that, in love, we feel a compulsion to go to them and say, hey, what you're doing is not honoring to the Lord. Living together is not God's plan for your relationship. That's public. It's 
obvious, it's a clear issue of the text of Scripture. Okay, so when do I go to a person when it's a safety issue, number one? Number two, when it's public damage to the reputation of Christ? And number three, when it's causing long-term damage to our relationship? So when, when this is causing long-term damage to our relationship, that's when I know I need to say something to you about this. So by and large, we want to be merciful people and we want to default to mercy. But let me give you a scenario, and I know you've experienced it in some way within relationships that are around you. Let's say that you have a friend and on one particular day, that friend is just a little off. You could tell maybe they didn't sleep well or they're just kind of irritated because as you're spending time with them, they're just really sharp. And what I mean by sharp is terse. They're cutting you off. They're saying things very bluntly. And it's kind of just bristly that day. So you're thinking to yourself, like, maybe they didn't sleep well. Maybe something's going on personally that I'm unaware of. Something's happening. But you know what? I'm not going to say anything to them about it today. I'm just going to do my best to be gracious and merciful. We're going to overlook it in love today. Okay, great. That's great. Great default position. We want to be gracious. We don't necessarily feel like we need to have a confrontation the first time someone is terse with us. But now that same pattern has repeated itself for nine days. And every time you've seen that friend and spent time with them, they cut you off. They're short. They're terse. They're unkind. In that way, you are now getting to a point where the way they're speaking to you is causing long-term damage to your relationship. And that long-term damage is something that I have to be willing to acknowledge. If I get to day 10 and 11 and 12 and they're still talking to me like this, they're still bristly, they're still unkind, they're still super curt and terse, cutting me off, we got problems. And we really do have problems. Like I'm now moving into this lane of, I need to say something to you about the way you're talking to me. That's what long-term damage is intended to represent. So you're surrounded by people that on day one, you should show them grace and mercy and overlook it to the best of your ability. But if that begins to cause long-term damage to your relationship, then you're moving to a point where you need to say something to them about what they're doing. Hey, you know, I don't know what's taking place, but it seems like for the past week and a half, you've just really been frustrated at me. The things that you're saying seem to suggest that. Okay, that's what long-term damage. So when do I know I should go to a person? Hey, peace fakers out there, you guys got to listen up because <laughs> you can't just avoid it forever. When do you know you should go to a person when it's a, an issue of safety, when this is causing public defamation to the name of Christ, or when this is causing a long-term damage to our relationship? I can't overlook this anymore. I, I have to say something. I can't be merciful and gracious by not going and saying something. I want to exude mercy and grace by actually going and saying something to them. So uh, let me take you over to Matthew chapter 18. You know, when I was first taught this passage, it really did have an effect on me, and it practically changed the way that I began to treat conflict. Matthew 18 verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew provides something to us, which is if you have a brother or sister in Christ who sins against you, then you are the one with the obligation to go to them. 
In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say that if you're at the altar preparing to offer your gift to the Lord, and there you remember that you have an ought with your brother, you should practice an immediacy of going to your brother. When it is time to actually confront a person, to go and to be reconciled, this third step of going and talking to them, when that time has come, there is a formula here in verse 15 that's given to us. Number one, go to them personally, privately. I shouldn't go to my mom and my sister. I shouldn't ask my prayer group for prayer about this. I should go to this individual first. In this way, when we have an issue and a a conflict with someone interpersonally, the first person that should know about it should be them. That's including those of us who are married. Some of us who are married, we tell our spouses just about everything there is to say, and we must be very guarded not to let this bleed into the communication of our marriage. If I have an issue with a colleague, I need to go to my colleague. If I have an issue with a student, I need to go to my student, a counselee, whoever it is. So the formula starts with, if you have been sinned against, then you go personally and privately. As you do that, the Bible is making restoration your goal. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. Galatians 6, we want them to be restored. We're not here to bust you out. We're not here to punish you. We want you to be restored. So when we go personally and privately, we're going to be motivated by our relationship being what it was like before this started. Let me explain that statement. Restoration means that our relationship looks like it looked before this conflict happened. If we were not best friends before this conflict happened, it's unrealistic of me to think we're going to be best friends after this. But if we were best friends before this conflict, it's very realistic and desirous for me to say, I want our relationship to look like what it did before. One of the future principles I'll talk about is forgiveness is canceling the debt and not letting it stand between you. So yes, go with the goal of restoration so that your relationship would look like what it looked like before. Let me give you a couple of final thoughts here, and then I have a question from a listener that I'd like to address. So as you're preparing to go, I've said, look, you want to start with mercy and a default position of covering it in love. Then if you know you cannot overlook it, there's at least three of those qualifications that have been met, maybe two of them, maybe all of them have been met. And when you go, you're starting with this personally and privately with the motivation of restoration. Once you do that, my encouragement is when you enter into that hard conversation to talk to a person about what's taking place, start with questions and clarifying what happened, and then volunteer your perspective. That way you can ensure that you guys are on the same page. So I might go to a person and say, hey, did you realize the other day when you said this, it was actually really embarrassing to me? When I go and I lead with questions in a confrontation, it often defangs the whole confrontation and it makes it a less difficult environment. But if I lead out with, you always embarrass me and you always do this to humiliate me, often that conversation is going to go south very quickly. So guys, as you're getting to that point of confrontation, in humility, start by clarifying and asking those questions before you do begin to practice verse 15, telling him his fault or telling her her fault. So last thing for today, I had a question come in from Adam in Canada, and he was asking about starting biblical counseling ministries and from a smaller church and just wondering, is it necessary for every church to have a biblical counseling ministry? And honestly, I I don't think it's necessary for every church to have a biblical counseling ministry. 
But I do think it's necessary for every church to have a plan for what happens when interpersonal and personal problems that are deeper and heavier and require a level of expertise take place in their church. So good elders and pastors may actually be able to meet with individuals and shepherd them through that circumstance. But sometimes you run into bandwidth issues, even in smaller churches, that you have three elders and they have two of them have a full-time job, and so they don't have the capacity to meet with individuals all the time. So every church, Adam, they have to have some plan for whenever things get difficult, who are you going to send your people to or who are you going to help connect them to? There are networks of biblical counselors. There are biblical counseling centers. Sometimes there are other churches in town that are practicing biblical counseling. So in smaller churches, we don't want to put pressure on smaller churches to have resources that they just simply don't have. But yet we do want to say develop a plan so that the people in your church can get help with God's word because we want them to, first of all, hear from someone like a biblical counselor who's going to take God's word and apply it to the problems that they're facing. So hopefully that helps, Adam. Thanks for writing in and asking that question. And before we go today, guys, let me pray for us and then we'll be done. Lord, we come to you as individuals that some of us just simply don't like conflict. And for us to think of confrontation, it gives us ulcers and we are tempted towards anxiety to think about confronting people. Lord, may you use the truth of your word to help make us better at that. Not that we would love it, but that we would trust you in confrontation. Some of us actually need to speak up and say some things to those that are around us. Now, we often get weird and get distanced, and we need to break that habit and start to speak the truth and be willing to go and to show and talk to our brothers and sisters and let them know what's happening. Lord, as you, as you continue to convict us of these truths, I just pray that it would result in glory to you and better relationships that are deeply satisfying and honoring to you that are all around us. So we ask for your help for this. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been Transformed with Dr. Greg Gifford, a production of Gospel Partners Media. Our website, transform.org, is your central hub for finding in-depth information on all things transformed. If you've enjoyed Transformed with Dr. Greg Gifford, consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. And also prayerfully consider joining this labor of love by becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner. Thank you for listening. And until next time, go serve your king. Thank you.